Welcome to High Heels in Politics, the podcast where we talk with the leaders of Ohio and beyond. And now, your host, Marianne Christie. Hello all, this is producer Ryan Kulik. This is part two of Marianne Christie's conversation with Ohio Supreme Court Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor. Here, the Chief Justice is going to talk a little bit about some more timely things and what she's looking for as she ends her term with the Supreme Court and what she's going to do at the next chapter of her life. So please enjoy part two of Marianne's conversation with the Ohio Supreme Court Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor. What would you say has been one of the most rewarding challenges that you have faced in your public service, whether it's on the Supreme Court or a prosecutor? At every office that I've held, there's been great reward. There's been great opportunity, as I started out by saying, opportunity to improve the office and also improve the role and to do good for people as a result of that. I remember when I was a magistrate, I was in charge of the adoptions. I did so many adoptions, from infant adoptions to adult adoptions across the board. And that was a responsibility that gave me a lot of pleasure, a lot of gratification, that you were, in essence, creating families legally, helping these people to create their families whether it was a step-parent adoption, whether it was a private placement adoption of an infant, whether it was through children's services, a private agency, a parent adoption, you know, I mean, an adult adoption where someone adopts a, a child who had been in a familial relationship with that individual from the time they were young, that sort of thing. So that, that was always a great, great, it was a responsibility that gave me a lot of pleasure when I was a magistrate. There were other things that I did as a magistrate, of course, but that was one of the things that were was particularly gratifying. And as a common police court judge, I always felt that uh, having an open-door policy, being uh, open to lawyers and, and not ex parte communication, but two lawyers want to come up and see me about something, yeah, okay, I'm here. It was always in my office, always, yeah. first thing in the morning till uh, well past closing time because there was work to be done, and I enjoyed it. But as the county prosecutor, gosh, like I said, Child Support Enforcement Agency was uh, a huge challenge. But hiring the right people and putting them in there, and that's always been my modus operandi. You hire the right people. You hire people that are even smarter than you are. Well, oftentimes are smarter than you are, more often than not. And you let them do their job. And you don't micromanage and you don't, you know, you just let them do your job. You obviously keep oversight so you know what's going on and you can be there to work with them. But you've got to trust smart employees and how they're doing their job. And that's always worked, truly worked for me. My involvement as prosecutor was no different. I had a good reputation uh, as a prosecutor, not only uh, locally, but statewide. As you said, I went to Columbus. I lobbied on and testified on uh, different bills and with criminal justice ramifications. And that's what I think drew me to the attention of Bob Taft when he was looking for a lieutenant governor uh, candidate. And, you know, being a, a lieutenant governor, the Department of Public Safety probably presented the biggest challenge of my career, in, but in a different way, because 9-11 happened when I was a Department of Public Safety Director, and that kind of catapulted 
one of my uh, divisions, the Emergency Management Agency, to the forefront because those were the agencies from around the country that were responsible for a response to a disaster and, you know, either natural or man-made. And so these, we had fortunately a wonderful uh, emergency management agency under the leadership of Dale Shipley when I was the director of uh, public safety. And it was, uh, we were in a good shape in Ohio for that. But I was involved not only with Ohio and certainly with uh, all the law enforcement that were, was on the job and the adjutant general's office, but in Washington with Tom Ridge, who was the original Homeland Security Secretary. He came to Ohio several times to you know see how we were doing things and was always very complimentary on how Ohio was operating. But just opening a, a whole new world post 9-11, I was at the site of the World Trade Center one week to the day after the World Trade Center fell because the Ohio search and rescue team was there pursuing a recovery mission. Uh, They did not find anyone alive, and it became, uh, excuse me, instead they were pursuing a rescue, and it became a recovery because they did not find anybody alive. But as lieutenant governor, I led a, a team uh, from Ohio to go there and bring these men and women things from Ohio. They were stationed at the Javits Center. And I remember we brought them uh, Cheryl's cookies, um, ice cream from graders. We flew in the state plane and we had these big containers of, of the ice cream for them and the Ohio flag and, you know, mementos from Ohio. But the most touching thing was uh, letters from their families their kids. And that was, it was just overwhelming to see their reaction uh, because he had been under such conditions, you know, working the way, what they were working on, going through rebel, looking for people, not finding people, finding bodies, etc. Psychologically, that had to be very hard, although they were trained, of course. But then to get the respite of letters from home, it was very emotional. Um, but, it, you know, that that was something I was privileged to be part of. And then you move on to the challenges of being Chief Justice. It's been a career I think I've I've been able to meet and, and succeed in more challenges than, than failed at challenges, I have to say, on the balance sheet of my career. And I think that topics such as bail reform, uh, fines, fees, you know, making sure that Poor people are not penalized in our criminal justice system just for being poor. Uh, do we needlessly impose dollar amounts on people when there's other ways, uh, you know, to do things? The opioid crisis, that is front and center, still is out there. Okay, this layer on COVID and how that affected the courts uh, for the last two plus years and how we had to rise to that challenge. I give directions to the judiciary who was looking for directions, tell us what we can do, what we can't do or should do or shouldn't do. Not that I was going to dictate, but we were going to provide guidance for them. And I said, we're going to start with the premise that the courts don't close. We don't close. We stay open. We just have to modify and how we do things. And then to come up with best practices, working with the National Center for State Courts, to come up with best practices even now 
lessons learned from COVID that we can still utilize. We learned so much about the use of technology. Okay, so why does somebody have to drive two hours to get to court when they can, you know, be on a computer screen and the judge can be on a computer screen and the opposing counsel can be on a computer screen and you can get so much more done that way. For pre-trials and those sort of things, it was like, duh, it was a no-brainer. So here's the challenge, though. Courts, as you may know, are not funded by the state. They are funded by their local communities for things like tables and chairs and equipment and programs and staff and that sort of thing. So not a a whole lot of courts had technology to rise to the occasion of, okay, we got to use technology. We've got to have laptops. We've got to have licenses for Zoom. We've got to have all this kind of stuff. And they didn't necessarily have it. Fortunately, like five years before COVID hit, I had started a program where I was giving grants to the local courts for technology use. And they could use the, that technology. They would make a grant application to the court, and they would use things like technology for case management system, technology for safety in the courts, magnetometers and cameras and that sort of stuff, a technology for upgrading their computers and their programs, things that you need technology for. Because the local, they didn't have enough money from the local courts more often than not. So this was a supplement. I had some excess money in my budget every year, and rather than turn it back into the general fund, and I'm talking about each year, maybe $3 million, $4 million. Drop in the bucket when you're talking about the general revenue fund. Manna from heaven when you're talking about local courts. That money can go so so much farther in local courts. So we would grant all this money each year, and the little local courts would beef up their, uh, and then... COVID hit. And it's like, okay, we've got some courts that are in great shape. We've got other courts that are in not so great shape and some that aren't good shape at all. So what can we do to help? And that's when I granted even more money. And right now, I've probably uh, $33 million since in the last seven, eight years that we've given to the local courts. And I say we, me, it's not It's not my money. Obviously, it's surplus money in our budget, but it's money that means so much to the local courts. That allowed so many of the courts to be up and running during COVID. And now to see the value of this technology going forward. You're making a lot of changes. One of the things you made a presentation on 4th of July in 2020, and you said... We are a nation governed by the rule of law. That is only possible if the people who make, enforce, and interpret the laws are trusted by those who are governed. I thought that was a tremendous statement to make because so often we say, well, they would just make a law. But it's not as simple as that. And today... You have said that you would like to finish your judicial career by launching a comprehensive statewide criminal data service. Do you want to elaborate on what I just said? It's uh, abundantly true and clear, and it's not something that I thought of, uh, that people have to respect the judiciary and respect those that make the laws in order for them to feel like they should obey those laws because we only have the rule of law in order to govern 
in this country. So it's important that the courts are trusted. And of the three branches of government, the courts have the highest level of trust that has been documented over the years. Unfortunately, it has gone down. Now, we're still the highest level, but probably lost about 15 points or so in the last couple of years. And other branches of government, even lower, our legislative and our executive branches. So we need to figure out a way to show people that we're transparent, the courts, and how we do things, what the criminal justice system looks like, and do that by the use of data. Data governs everything. There's not a business that's successful in that does not use data to determine what works and what doesn't work. We don't do that in the criminal justice system. We don't use data that way. We don't even collect it. So we spend millions and trillions of dollars, and do we know what's effective? Do we know whether incarcerating someone is effective? Do they not recidivate when they get out? How about if we put them in a a different diversion program? What's the success of that diversion program? How about drug courts? What's the long-term effect of drug courts? This is all data that we need to collect. Uh, We need to collect uh, data on what happens pre-trial to individuals, what happens when they go through the criminal justice system, I mean through the courts, what happens, obviously they're acquitted, there's no consequence, and and they're, they're done with the system. But if they're found guilty or they plead guilty, what happens then with sentencing, what happens with post-release control, all that sort of stuff. And there's so many different factors there. And each one of those can be a data point, and then it can be researched. And so you want to say, is our court system fair, our criminal justice system fair to people who fit this category? Males 18 to 23 who have less than a high school education, who are maybe unemployed, who are involved in this particular offense. How does the court system treat those people? What's the span of, uh, you know, what's the average sentence for somebody like that? Are they put out in community control more often than not? Well, it depends on what the offense is, of course. But you need that data to be able to translate that into facts that people are going to embrace, believe, and translate to trust in the system so that we show that people are uh, treated equally across the board. Do I know if the data would show that right now? No, I don't. Nobody can tell you that. Nobody can tell you whether there's disparities. I mean, they can do anecdotally tell you about some disparities that they look at Judge A in their community and they see how Judge A has ruled on this case and the defendant happened to be white and then it ruled on this case and the defendant happened to be a person of color. They see a disparity. What they don't see is behind the scenes, what's the record like in each? What's uh, the nature of the victim? There's a lot of disparities. All they see is the same, they, they pled or they've been found guilty of the same offense. So the data will help with that. This data is all anonymized, so it's not pointing fingers at judges or counties or whatever. It's data is just collected, the data points, and then the research is done. You mentioned your interest in that area. 
you're going to be retiring because it's mandatory as a justice of the Supreme Court. What are your goals, your future goals? Well, it's mandatory of any judge who reaches the, the age of 70 cannot run again. If you're 70 in your office, you can finish out your term but you just can't run again. Okay, I happen to be 70. This is my last year in office. My term is at the end, is up at the end of this year. So what am I going to do? I think I'm going to take a breather. (laughs) I think I'm going to just, you know, take a couple months to just figure out what I want to do and travel and enjoy life and not have a schedule. You may get the chance to do that European... Tour oh, that you I might be able to about. bomb around Europe. I'll get a, I'll get a, a, a nice uh, backpack and, and have at it. I don't think so. I think my standards might have changed a wee bit since then. But I love to travel. I've been around the world uh, traveling. Some of it, many of it, much of it, associated with speaking engagements and teaching engagements around the world. Literally. What area did you like the most? Because I've traveled around the world. I like the Mediterranean area. And by that, I mean south of France, down the coast of Italy. I like Morocco, Tunisia, the Middle East. I really enjoy that area of the world. That's, I just think it's so interesting, so diverse. And beautiful. My favorite is Turkey uh-huh. in that the Black Sea area. Right. So, is there right. talk today about the I've, Ukraine? I've, I've been to Turkey a, a couple times, and uh, I feel the same. It's just absolutely fascinating. I love learning about the different cultures. I enjoyed South Africa. I was there to give remarks at a, a judicial conference in South Africa. When I was in South Africa, I went diving with great white sharks. Okay, yes, great down there for and that. And that was, uh, that was an interesting experience. I've been to the Philippines. I've been to like Morocco twice. Uh, I've been to, you know, as I said, uh, Turkey, Israel. I spent uh, almost three weeks there at University of Tel Aviv on a program. Oman, I, I was there with the National Guard when I was lieutenant governor. Uh, Hungary, Germany, the same thing with the National Guard. Uh, so and then you know the my go to is always Ireland, which is O'Connor. Yeah, I mean that, and it's uh, I've been there, I don't know, ten or twelve times. Interesting. So. You did your family kind of history. Of- oh, I yes, I've met uh, you know relatives and absolutely. Okay. Well, I think we're coming to the end. I just want to say you've established your home and family in Akron and raised your two sons, Alex and Ed, graduated from Seton Hill. Now, that is not Seton Hall College, and received your law degree from Cleveland Marshall. You know what? Women of our age, well, I'm a few years older than you, But it was uncommon to raise a family and have a successful career outside the home. Yet you did both. How did you manage it? Well, I have to say that I had great role models. My grandmother was a social worker. She was born in 1901 and became a social worker, had a family. She worked all of her adult life. I mean, I should say she she worked, she had four young children and it was during the Depression, and uh, she got a job as a social worker. And that carried on till I remember when I was 
a young, young girl. She was still working as a social worker. She retired from working for Cuyahoga County as a, a social worker. My grandmother, who worked, that was a role model. That was nothing new to me to see a woman working outside of the home. My mother was raised eight children. She was a woman who could do literally anything. She was a graduate of Seton Hill as well. And uh, when I was either sen- yeah, senior in high school, freshman in college, She decided that she wanted to go into the antique business, and she did. She became very successful at it. The rest is history from, like, 1969 forward until she died in 19, or excuse me, 2004. That was her business. And uh, I worked for her when I was in college and law school and afterwards, and I love same thing. Antiques, I love artwork, I love, you know, all that stuff. And I, I attribute my mother, that, you know, to my mother. So it was not unusual for me to see strong women working, raising a family, and uh, succeeding. It didn't seem to me like I was doing anything out of the ordinary. And as I said, a large faction of my class were women. Now, very few had children. Very few, some of them, I, I think, did. But very few had children. I had two children. I had one uh, child, my first child, uh, let's see, June after my second year in law school. And then uh, the day after I graduated, I had my son, Ed. So timing is everything in life, I say. And so <laughs> it seemed to me like a, a, a good idea not to interrupt a career uh, by having to have, you know, a maternity leave, etc., like that. So have them before you get a, you get a career, before you're hired, before you're working like that. And so it worked out. It, yep. it worked out. How did I do it? I had strong encouragement and help from parents, and I just made things work. Well, I want to thank you for taking all this time. And I want to say on behalf of all Ohioans, we want to... We have a better understanding now of how the Supreme Court actually impacts all our lives. And your words of inspiration for the next generation of leaders is very important. So I want to thank you. Thank you, Marian. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome, Bubba. High Heels and Politics is produced by Marianne Christie and Ryan Kulik. Engineered by Ryan Kulik. Music by Sherrod Sate. Subscribe to High Heels and Politics on Google, Apple, Spotify, and all of your podcast networks.